Christy Ashwanden is the lead science writer at 538 and author of the new book, Good to Go, what the athlete and all of us can learn from the strange science of recovery. You can get it now wherever books are sold. Also check out her work at christyashwanden.com. Give her a follow on Twitter, at Craig Crest. Christy, thank you so much for the time today. How you doing? I'm great. I'm great. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. What inspired you to write this book? Well, you know, I'm an athlete myself. I'm uh, no longer competing at an elite level, but I used to. And back when I was an elite athlete, um, recovery was something I struggled with. It's something that I think, you know, looking back at my athletic career, is something I never quite seemed to manage to get quite right. And so I went and got to become an expert on it and wrote this book. Yeah, and uh, one of the first recovery ideas you examined was drinking beer after a run. Very popular urban myth. Some people swear by it. After not finding concrete scientific research that it was good or bad for you, you actually set up your own experiment. How so, and what were those final results? Yeah, so we set up an experiment, recruited some folks to come in and drink beer after a hard run, and then we brought them back to the lab to do some testing. And our results showed that beer was, well, I'll just cut to the chase, beer was great for women and bad for men. Huh. Why is that? Yeah. Well, uh, as I describe in the book, this is the, the first chapter we're talking about here, which is all about beer and running. Um, I basically uh, looked at our results, and as much as I wanted to believe, believe them, and trust me, I, I did, because I'm a woman married to a man, and this you know, would have given me license to say, sorry, honey, you're the designated driver, I'm the drinker, <laughs> like, it's science speaking. <laughs> um, but I, I had a hard time believing the results, and I kind of go through the reasons for that. Um, but I think the takeaway here is that it's really hard to answer even a simple question like this with a single study. And our results were really intriguing, but we had a lot of variability uh, within them. And it wasn't clear that this was a result that would be generalizable. So if we were to do the study again, or if we were to use a larger sample size or use uh, slightly different conditions, we might get a different result. And I kind of use this as an example of why you need to be careful before uh, putting all of your faith in a single study. Science is really powerful. It's the best way we have for understanding the world. Um, but it's really a process of uncertainty reduction. It's more of a process than it is an answer. And I think we really do ourselves a disservice when we say, oh, there was this one study and now we know everything. Um, we tend to think of science as being this magic wand that touches, uh, turns everything it touches into truth. But instead, it's sort of uh, this process of getting closer and closer to the truth, but it can also often send us in the wrong directions, too. So we have to always be open to new evidence and to new studies and to new findings. Obviously, there is a lot put into the nutritional element of recovery in 2019. When did that idea, when did all these different foods and beverages really enter the mainstream? Yeah, so there are different different. Uh, eras for different products and things. But I would say um, it was sort of the late 80s when energy foods really became a thing. Uh, Power Bar was probably the first one. Um, you know, things like uh, Gatorade and some of the sports drinks came much earlier. Um, but in the late 80s and, and early 90s and throughout the 90s, there was really this idea that uh, we really needed to refuel right away after exercise, that there is this recovery window. And if you didn't get some food in right away, particularly protein um, within this little window, sometimes it was said to be 20 minutes, maybe it was as long as 45, but that if you miss that window, you would really be hurting and you're missing an opportunity to optimize your recovery. But we now know after doing more studies, and this kind of gets back to my previous point, you know, those early studies looked promising, but as uh, researchers did more and more of them and kind of 
uh, looked under different conditions, what they began to realize is that it's the protein itself that's beneficial. The timing of it was not so important. And same with carbohydrates and, and other nutrients. And so the important thing is to eat a healthy diet throughout the day. Um, you know, if, if you burn a lot of energy during a workout, you'll probably feel hungry and then it's a good idea to eat. But if you can't eat right away, it's fine to wait until your next meal and eat a normal food uh, meal with you know, good nutritional value and all that like you would otherwise, but you really don't need special foods to do this. One other part about nutrition that I really enjoyed is you really going back to the beginning stages of Gatorade when it was created at the University of Florida back in the 1960s. By total happenstance, I ended up having an interview with Jack Youngblood, who was part of those uh, Florida Gator football teams that were actually the guinea pigs for the testing of Gatorade, not just the overall formula, but also having the product palatable enough to where guys could actually drink it. And eventually, as you point out in the book, uh, they end up uh, improving their performance from one season to the next. They make it, I think, to the Orange Bowl, beat Georgia Tech in the Orange Bowl. Georgia Tech's coach actually says that the Gatorade was one of the big differences in the game. And Jack Youngblood agreed with that. He said that absolutely it made a difference in us being able to beat Georgia Tech that day. Now, whether or not that's the placebo effect is maybe a different conversation. I'm curious, though, did electrolytes exist before Gatorade did? <laughs> absolutely. Electrolytes is just a scientific name for salt, um, for you know solutes that are in your blood. And these are things that we get all the time from food. Uh, most of the foods we eat contain these salts. Um, you can get electrolytes from a banana. You can get it uh, you know, from a salty pretzel, all sorts of things that we're already eating. Um, so the idea that we need some sort of special uh, formula in a sports drink to get them is, is just uh, sort of not true. <laughs> and so salt helps you to retain water. And obviously, hydration is a big deal in the world of sports. And I don't right. know if you saw this or not from a couple of years ago, actually here in Austin, the Texas Longhorn football team had an insistence that its players follow a chart that tested hydration based on the color of the individual's urine. And that became a national story. It became a huge story. But in the reality, is the color of one's urine an accurate gauge of hydration? It's not. It's not. What, what your urine color is really telling you is how much water your body is, um, how much extra water your body is releasing. So you can sort of imagine that your body is a bucket. Uh, the amount of fluid that you need um, is whether the bucket is full. And so the color of your urine is really, um, it's like a, an overflow spigot there. So if you're dumping in a lot of extra water, the bucket's already full. Uh, your urine will be really clear, but the bucket's full, and it was full before you were adding that extra wa water. At the same time, if, if the bucket's full and you're not adding anything, um, your urine's going to be darker colored. You're not going to have a lot of, of urine coming out, um, but you still have enough, of, enough water in the bucket or you still have enough fluid in your body. And it turns out, particularly when we're exercising, our bodies are pretty good at conserving water when they need to. So this idea that you need to, to drink before you're thirsty or early and often is actually not true. And it can actually become dangerous if you're drinking um, to some sort of formula or drinking on a schedule um, or you're drinking when you really aren't feeling thirsty and when your body doesn't need that fluid. Because what can happen is your blood becomes too dilute and people actually die from this. And that's called water intoxication, correct? That's right. That's right. Also, hyponatremia is the, the medical term for it. I was actually blown away to read that the emphasis placed on hydration is overstated. And we've heard that for the longest time now. And you actually dispelled a couple of myths regarding hydration and its effects on the body as well. So I wanted to ask you about those now. Does dehydration mm -hmm. cause heat stroke? 
It doesn't. It doesn't. There was a really large scale study looking at people in the military, thousands of people, and uh, only about 20 percent of heat stroke cases even had dehydration associated with them. So they are not one in the same. And I think one one important thing to understand is that exerting yourself with the heat, that's what causes heat stroke. And so you can be as hydrated as it's possible for a human being to be, and it's still going to be difficult for you to, to exercise uh, with high intensity in the heat. And so the idea that um, staying hydrated will, will prevent heat stroke and things like this, I think is, is dangerous because it gives us this idea that um, – you know, if it's if it's really that hot out, you probably the solution is is to go inside or to wait until it's cooler, um, because our bodies aren't aren't great at coping with uh, you know heavy exertion during the heat. And in fact, that's why you know you'll never see a marathon world record set during extreme heat. It's why you know athletic performance does tend to diminish in the heat. That's your body sort of protecting itself from those sorts of things. But um, just drinking more water, although it is important to drink more water when it's, when it's hot, you're going to be sweating more. Um, you'll also become more thirsty. And so this goes back to the idea, like, it's okay to drink to thirst. That's actually the best way to do it. Um, at the same time, it's important to pay attention to it. And I think uh, the one danger here is that if you say, well, just drink to thirst, but then you're not thinking about it, um, that's where athletes can can sort of go, go wrong. But we've really swung in the, the opposite direction where people are are hydrating so much that they're putting themselves at risk for hyponatremia. So dehydration does not cause heat stroke to the degree that we've all been led to believe over all these years. How about dehydration's role in muscle cramps? Uh, Surely a lack of water is what causes our muscles to cramp up when we've been running around over a certain amount of time. Right. Yeah, that was a really common belief. Um, it's something I was told when I was a high school runner. Um, but it turns out that, that dehydration and hydration status and electrolytes are, don't seem to be uh, the, the cause of cramps and don't seem to be the solution either. Um, that really, this is a neuromuscular thing, and it's, it's probably related to fatigue. Um, but it's not something, you know, taking an electrolyte or drinking will not prevent cramping, and that's pretty well established now. Now, I wanted you to uh, expand on something that you touched on a couple of answers ago, and it uh, has to do with eating post-workout or post-exercise. Do you agree with John Portman and University of Texas professor Robert Ivey's formula of the 4-to-1 carb-to-protein intake in terms of maximizing the benefits of consumption within that 45 minutes of a workout or what they like to call that post-exercise anabolic window? Yeah, it turns out that that anabolic window is more like a barn door. Um, You really (laughs) don't need to uh, worry about the timing so much. It's the nutrients themselves, and that's a pretty good formula in terms of the ratios and all of that. Um, But what's what's less important is just the timing. And so as they've done subsequent subsequent studies, there have been some studies where looking at – strength athletes and whatnot. Um, And it turns out that it's the protein itself that's helpful. So they've given people the protein before the workout or even during the workout, and that helps. So it's not the timing that matters so much. And, you know, I I know that athletes can sometimes get really anxious about this and worry about how are they going to get these nutrients right away after the workout, because sometimes it's not convenient or you don't have the right thing. And this is where a lot of these recovery uh, products come in and recovery foods um, but in most cases, you can go and have a regular meal, have regular foods, and you'll be okay. And it doesn't have to be timed to a specific, um, you know, very short window. Um, the exception would be if you are going to be performing at a high level again, then it's a good idea because, you know, you're going to need that fuel right away. But if you do it within hours, your body will be fine. If you're 
not training or working out or performing until the next day. So if it's a quick turnaround on the same day and you maybe have a couple of hours off, you want to uh, get that energy source in terms of the uh, four to one carbs to protein inside of you. Otherwise, the window, like you said, is more of a barn door. And you also said earlier that that's especially the case if you're eating healthy breakfast, lunches and dinner. I'm curious because I'm somebody who intermittent fasts from time to time. Does that change the need to eat right after a workout if you do the workout? out in the middle of an, uh, an intermittent fast? Um, again, I think it really goes back to, uh, you know, getting those nutrients in when you can. The timing doesn't seem to be particularly um, important. But that said, um, intermittent fasting is something that people are starting to do now. And I don't know that there's good evidence right now about how that fits into this. It may be that that changes the conditions a little bit. I don't think we have uh, concrete answers to that yet. Hmm. Did... Usain Bolt won three gold medals in each of the 2008, 12, and 16 Summer Olympics because of Chicken McNuggets. <laughs> no, but he did eat them, and he did win those gold medals. <laughs> um, he, did not, he did not win those medals because he ate the Chicken McNuggets, but he also would not have won, won those medals because he ate uh, the special food product or uh, drink or shake or whatever either. You know, he won those medals because he's the fastest man alive. He's very talented. And I think this gets to an important concept, which is that um, we all know, and I think it's very intuitive, that nutrition is really important. What we put in our bodies is crucial. At the same time, we want to have uh, superfoods and things that are like the secret to all of this. And it turns out that our bodies are pretty good at coping with whatever we're throwing at it with this, as long as we're overall in general eating pretty healthy and getting all of the good nutrients, um, you'll do okay. I talked in the book about a study uh, where they brought people into the lab and exercised them hard and gave them two types of recovery foods. One was all these special recovery products, the energy bars and the sports drinks and all that. And then in another condition, everyone went through the protocol twice. In another condition, they were given uh, McDonald's, fast food stuff. And in both cases, they were able to recover and perform uh, a similar amount to a similar degree. So it turned out that that was not the, the very key issue. And so, you know, you need to have an important uh, you, you need to have a healthy diet overall. Uh, but the idea that there's one special food that's going to make all the difference is probably misguided. Despite that. Peanut butter and jelly sandwiches are ridiculously yeah. popular in the NBA. You actually point this out in the book, and you also point out what happened in 2015 when the Golden State Warriors, head of physical performance and sports medicine, tried to ban them from the team. What happened to that man? Right. Well, he's no longer working for the team. Let's just put it that way. <laughs> um, and look, peanut butter and jelly sandwiches are delicious. Like, I ate them when I was a kid. I still eat them. They're a great snack. They're a great post-workout snack and you know they're real food but the issue here that some of the nutrition nutritionists had was that jelly has sugar but you know as long as you're not eating uh you know whole jars of it all at once um you know our bodies are going to do okay so i'm not totally sure uh christy how to pronounce this so i'm going to say it and i'm going to spell it out as well but what is red s or r-e-d dash s yeah, I've heard it called REDS. I'm not sure if there's a standard way of pronouncing the acronym, but it stands for Relative Energy Deficiency Syndrome. And what this is, is basically um, it's a syndrome in athletes who are particularly paying attention to their weight. So in so many sports, being light and lean is an important part of performance. You know, you, you're able to perform better if you're not carrying around extra weight. But athletes can become sort of so fixated on their weight and, and so, um, you know, focused on it 
that they, they don't fuel their workouts enough. And so REDS happens when they're sort of chronically not getting enough energy and uh, to fuel their workout, and you're not getting enough, enough recovery then. So it's important here to know that you really do need to eat enough and, and get enough calories and enough nutrients in after workouts. And again, it's not, not about having to be like immediately in the, the 20 minutes following the workout, but overall. So um, athletes who are watching their weight need to be really careful that they're not doing so at the expense of their recovery and at the expense of their body's ability to repair themselves. Um, and, and that can, in fact, happen when they are energy deficient or calorie deficient. So they're cutting calories to the point where they're just not able to recover from workouts. And this can cause all kinds of things. Um, in women, uh, they can lose their periods. Um, but in men, you know, their testosterone can be reduced, uh, all kinds of other, other problems. Um, the performance really plummets, and that's the thing that people for sure will notice. You do a great job of busting a lot of myths, a lot of popular myths that existed in the world of recovery for a long time. We've talked about a couple of those in the way of specific nutrition-type products, whether it's beverages or power bars or things like that. Also, the idea of hydration or overhydration or underhydration and the effect it actually has on the body. I was also a little bit surprised to see something that I feel like has been around as long as any of those ideas, and that is the concept of cold therapy when it comes to helping one recover from a hard workout or maybe even recover from an injury. Now, Gene Merkin is the guy who popularized the recovery method known as RICE, that's rest, ice, compression, and elevation. Is re- mm-hmm. He's actually rethinking the ice part of that acronym now. Why are we starting to see such a pushback on cold therapy for injuries and sore muscles? Yeah, it really is a, a very long-standing tradition, right? And and uh, you know, it's very common to see athletes uh, singing themselves in ice baths after a hard workout. Um, it's almost become part of part of the whole uh, culture of sport. But it turns out that icing can be detrimental. Um, you know, the one of the ideas behind icing is that it reduces inflammation, and it it actually does do that. And that's actually the problem. Interestingly enough, um, inflammation is a really important part of your body's. Uh, uh, process for recovering from hard exercise. So when you say lift a heavy muscle, you create microscopic damage in that muscle. And the inflammatory process is part of what happens to repair that damage and to make the muscle stronger for the next time. So you probably noticed that like the third time you lift a heavy, heavy weight or do a workout, you're going to get much less sore than you did the first time. And that's because in the process of repairing uh, this damage, you, you get stronger and you add more, more to your muscles and, and sort of embolden them and, and make them stronger. Um, and, and interfering, yeah, interfering with inflammation can actually disrupt this process. And so there's been interesting studies where they uh, put people on exercise programs and they ice only one limb, so like the right arm and not the left, or the right arm and not the left leg, things like that. And, and they find that, that uh, people don't make the same kinds of strength gains uh, they don't build muscle as well with the icing. So there, there's actually some pretty good evidence now that icing is is not a good idea if you're trying to make gains and to get stronger and fitter. Inflammation is a huge buzzword in the world of uh, health and wellness right now. So is blood flow, boosting blood flow. A yeah. lot of recovery methods, even those that don't work, promise to boost blood flow. Why is boosting blood flow so important to recovery? Well, the idea here is that uh, you want blood blood flow in order to clear metabolites that are um, generated during hard exercise. And that's fine. Your body does that. Um, But the very best way to do this is just from exercise. So in other words, um, after your hard workout, 
you do a warm down, keep the blood flow going. So you're sort of flushing things out like that. Um, and there's a, there's a really common um, and erroneous idea out there that, that it's really important to flush lactic acid out of the muscles, that lactic acid is what's going to make you sore. You got to get it out of there. And so many of these products um, make this claim that they're flushing the lactic acid out of your muscles. But it turns out that, first of all, lactic acid is not the thing that makes you sore. And the second issue is that your body actually clears it pretty quickly. So probably by the time you're even using one of these modalities or one of these gadgets or gizmos, um, that lactic acid is already gone. So whatever claims they're making about lactic acid just really don't hold up. You started out with the beer experiment. You actually did self-experimentation for uh, various methods that you then covered in this book. I'm curious to know how compression tights fared in your research and self-experimentation. Yeah, so this is one of the things where there's a lot of, of claims made for these compression things. One is that they're they're helping to clear lactic acid, which, of course, is not, not helpful, not an interesting claim that you need to be worried about. Um, but what I did find is that compression uh, garments tend to feel really good. P- athletes like the way that they feel in their muscles. Um, and that, it turns out, is worth a lot. Um, at its most basic level, recovery is just rest and relaxation. Hmm. So anything that helps you re- relax your muscles, anything that helps you relax is actually aiding recovery. And so that's working. And so we don't need these sort of pseudoscientific explanations about how they're flushing toxins out of your blood or out of your muscles um, to convince us that they work. If it's making you feel good, if it's making your muscles feel good, if it's helping your muscles relax, helping your mind and body relax, then that's enough. The root of rest, of course, is sleep. I would assume, at least based on me before I read this book, and I'm guessing after reading the book as well, that for you, the most important element for recovery, and you mentioned the rest element of it, is getting a quality night's sleep. Is that correct? Absolutely. There's nothing, nothing else even comes close. And if you're not getting enough sleep, all this other stuff is not even worth your time. None of it. I mean, you could add all of the other things combined and they still would not be anywhere near as powerful as sleep. Now, most of us are guilty of staring at a screen right before bed. TVs, tablets, computers, phones, Mm. things like that. It seems obvious, but does that blue light exposure disrupt quality sleep? Absolutely. It does. It, um, you know, that blue light interferes with your natural process of sort of shutting down. It can interfere with the release of melatonin. So it's really important to put those screens away before bed, at least an hour before. If you can't do that, um, look for one of those apps like Flux is one of them um, that will actually change the light um, on your devices as mm. to sort of filter out the blue light as the day goes on and darkness comes down, but it's really best to just avoid screens right before bed. And then the the other thing to do is to keep the phones and tablets and the disruptions out of the bedroom. Um, The last thing you need in the middle of the night is to hear a text message or email coming in. Um, You're sleeping. It can wait. The supplement industry is fascinating. Certainly there are things out there that truly boost performance, why some PEDs are illegal in sports, but is there a good way to tell the legit supplements from the bogus ones? Um, not really. The problem is that even well-meaning companies that aren't trying to scam, um, just so many of the ingredients in these things are sourced from similar places. Most of them come from overseas. It's just extremely hard to know what you're getting. And in the book, I talk about multiple instances of athletes who are actually testing positive for illicit illicit drugs 
um, from things that they ingested through a supplement. And in some cases, it's even from a supplement provided from their sponsor. And, you know, you have to think that those sponsors weren't intentionally um, spicing those things. So it's not that the companies, in most cases, not all, but it, it's not that the companies are trying to do bad things. It's just that the sourcing um, can can be difficult. Um, but these things really, they're not regulated like pharmaceuticals are. So you really don't have assurances that what's on the label is what you're getting. And uh, the regulation here is just very lax. Does the International Society of Sports Nutrition or ISSN help that process at all? Or is it still pretty murky waters, even with their presence in the world of supplements? Um, well, you know, that's a, a group that was created by um, a bunch of supplement uh Boosters. They have done a lot of, of science on this stuff. I think that um, in many cases they have good intentions, but um, you know, the fundamental level is that uh, you don't always know what you're getting. Uh, these things don't seem to be things that that we need. There's really no good evidence that uh, we need to take extra vitamins or extra. You know, there's all sorts of amino acids and things like this that are that are targeted and marketed at athletes, but there just isn't good evidence that that we need that, particularly if you're eating a healthy diet. And, you know, one of the things that the marketing will do is is try and feed on anxiety that people have that their diet isn't perfect. But again, your body's pretty good at coping with stuff. So you don't have to have a perfect diet every single day if in general you're pretty good. And, And studies do show that people overall tend to get all of the nutrients they need. You know, most Americans are not vitamin deficient, so you really don't need a vitamin. One of the founders of the ISSN gave you a quote that was so profound that you actually repeated it and italicized it, uh, the next paragraph in the book. And the quote goes like this, there's no better marketing than science, regardless of the supplement, the equipment, the technology, whatever the recovery method is. Is there a way to truly measure its scientific accuracy? The accuracy of the the supplement? Of the supplement, the recovery tool, you know, whatever the method is that's being touted as helping to, you to recover. Is there is there a uh, an organization that helps track that, or is there some way to truly know uh, whether the the so called scientific research is actually uh, on point and worth uh, worth the uh, the weight in gold that it's uh, being used as to help sell that product? Yeah, it's actually really hard. It's really hard, and in fact. Um, I don't think that there's an easy way to distinguish a really good study from a bad one. Um, it's hard. And so this is one of the things that, that makes this also tricky. And you can uh, be told about a study and it sounds really good, but you may not know about the other studies that were done that didn't show a benefit. So that's another issue there. Um, I would just say that studies that are very small, which many of these tend to be, are much less reliable than larger studies. Um, you want to know that the study had a control group. Um, but but this is a situation where with some of these recovery methods, it can be really hard to have um, a good placebo. So in many cases, it's hard to distinguish between the placebo effect and, you know, a, a, a physiological effect. So it's, it's tricky stuff. And it's, it's these are things that are very difficult to navigate, which is part of the reason I, I wrote this book was to kind of try to help walk people through it. One of my favorite lines of yours from this book is this regarding blood test companies of which you are uh, you're skeptical on and understandably so. It's uh, it's essentially a way. And let me go ahead and read this this quote because you summarize it perfectly. The fact that a whole industry has popped up to help healthy people find ways to feel anxious about their bodies seems like a statement about the weird times we're living in. 
based on that sentence and the amount of research you did for Good to Go, have you found yourself stressing out less about your own well-being? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And I think, you know, on some level, we just have so much anxiety. We have been sort of marketed this idea that there is an optimal us out there. And we just, if we could just do the right weird tricks, we could get to that perfect place. But it turns out that, you know, the things that are the most important are also the sort of the basics. And so this may sound kind of boring. It's like sleep, you know, overall healthy diet and things like this. But those are the things that really matter. And it's the marketing that's that's really trying to convince us that there's something more and that there's some other um, tool that we can get and that we're missing out. And I talk a lot in the book about FOMO or the fear of missing out and this idea that is so pervasive in the marketing that, you know, there's there's a trick or secret that can really help you so much if only you, you would do it. And it turns out that, you know, most of these things are just, if they're effective at all, their benefits are small and they're, they're nowhere near as beneficial as the things that you'll, you'll get just by really mastering the basics. You've done a great job of pointing out in the book and then also in this conversation today that most recovery tools lack enough research to prove that they actually work. Is there a tool or service that you covered in this book that you think will eventually have such proof? Um, that's a really good question. Let me think about that for a second. Would would sensory deprivation tanks maybe be on that list for you? So I will say that I, I really believe in sensory deprivation ch- tanks. I tried them. I found that I really loved them. It was something I wasn't expecting to, to love. Um, I think they can be helpful for a lot of people. Um, but the issue here, and it's interesting, is that the way that they're working is actually by helping people relax. And so there's going to be people that just don't don't find them relaxing. Um, I feel pretty claustrophobic, and so I expected to feel claustrophobic in the float tank. It turned out that I didn't. But if I was someone who couldn't get comfortable in the float tank, then it wouldn't be helping me because the way that it's really helping is by helping you relax. It's kind of like forced meditation. And so much of the benefit here comes from the psychological stress reduction that you're getting. And this is, I think, an underappreciated aspect of recovery. Um, So many athletes sort of neglect life stress and and don't realize that that life stress is just as hard on your body as the exercise. And if you're not figuring out a way to uh, address and to reduce the stress in your life, you're never going to get to optimal recovery. And it's that life stress and that sort of overall stress that things like float tanks and meditation can be really good and really helpful at addressing. What is a recovery tool that lacks the research to prove whether or not it actually works that you are certain never will have that research on its back? Is it maybe the Tom Brady 12 pajamas or is there something else that you're like, no, this is an absolute waste of your time to uh, spend any money on this? Yeah, I would say the Tom Brady uh, pajamas, Uh, (laughs) but also I think uh, the electrolyte tablets that have become popular. That's another thing that people really? really don't need. Okay. Um, yeah, that's, you know, you can get your electrolytes from food. You don't need to, to drink them. And there have been, um, in the book, I talk about several athletes who tested positive from taking electrolyte tablets. And this isn't, I'm not trying to say that I, I think that most electrolyte tablets do not contain banned substances, but it just kind of goes back to, you know, why take one of these uh, very engineered products when you can eat real food? And finally going to have you bust one more myth that uh, people just okay. believe is uh, just something that happens in the world of fitness and recovery and exercise. Does stretching have recovery benefits and are there medical benefits to stretching? Oh, great question. 
no, no proven, no established uh, benefit to recovery from stretching. There's no evidence that it helps with soreness um, or with, with injury prevention, interestingly enough. And there, there have been several wide, wide scope studies looking at this, um, <clears throat> enough to where the, the evidence seems pretty convincing. Um, the one exception would be if, if you already have an injury and your physical therapist or doctor is recommending a particular stretch, that might be an instance where it's worthwhile. Um, but if you're stretching before or after a workout in hopes that it will prevent you from being sore or prevent you from getting injured, there just really isn't good evidence that that's the case. And I would actually go as far as saying that if you're doing too much static stretching before a workout, you run a higher risk of injuring yourself during the activity too. Yeah, that's right. And, and there was one study that was showing uh, that for runners anyway, that, that might be the case. Stretching before running might might actually uh, not be helpful. And and there's been a few that, that hint that it could reduce performance a little bit, but these 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 uh, effects are pretty small. But I think the takeaway is there's just not a good reason to do it for, for those sorts of reasons. I mean, it does help you touch your toes if that's what you're looking for. But, uh, <laughs> for, for soreness and injury and all that, forget it. Yeah. The new book is Good to Go, What the Athlete and All of Us Can Learn from the Strange Science of Recovery. Christy Ashwanden, nice enough to join me today for a half hour. Christy, thank you so much for the time. Really enjoyed the book. It's a front runner for my favorite book of 2019. I know we still have a little bit of time left in this year, but uh, this was a strong effort here. I learned a lot, and uh, I'm very grateful of you spending the time with me today. Thank you so much. Oh, thanks for having me. It's my pleasure.